Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It was a, a slow trip, but it was what we wanted in that it was to be an all land crossing. We crossed rivers, but we never traveled up or down them to avoid difficult areas. We found ways either around them or through them. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Patty Upton. Patty is an overlander who is now on a mission to share and tell the story of the life and adventures of her husband, Lauren. Patty and Lauren embarked on a number of sensational adventures in overland vehicles, traveling through the Darien Gap and on a bigger global journey that ultimately took decades to complete. At the heart of it, this is a conversation about what partnership, companionship and love can bring to an adventurous life. It's a conversation about loyalty, commitment and bravery. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Patty Upton. So, thanks very much for doing this. Let's start at the start. Um, please, could you introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you? Um, my name's Patty Upton, and I do just about anything I need to do. Um, I have traveled. I've always traveled. I love to travel. Uh, Dad was military, so you had your bags packed every three years saying, okay, where are we going? Where are we going? Let's go. Um so that was, and I have trouble relating to people that have never been, like I'm in a very small town now and I've lived here for 30 years, which is unheard of for me to be, but I mean, I've left and traveled, but always come back. So relating to people that have been here all their life, it's kind of like, wow, that's gotta be scary. You know, there's a world out there. And obviously you've mentioned the father and the military thing, but where did your personal travel come from? How did that start? And what was it you that pushed, what was it that pushed you towards that? Well, I said, I've been traveling before I was born. Uh, dad was again, Marine Corps. He was mom and dad actually honeymoon driving across the United States in the early fifties. Um, 
And mom was pregnant with me in Pendleton, California. Dad was shipped to uh, Japan on a company duty for a year and a half. And she was stuck in Pendleton. So her mom flew out from New Jersey, picked her up and flew her back to New Jersey. So hence, I was born in New Jersey. Um, Dad didn't, I didn't meet my father till I was a year and a half old. And uh, we just, that's, I've always said that somewhere in my DNA, it just means that I'm supposed to keep moving. (laughs) And what, so what was childhood like for you? Was it constant movement or was there some stability? No, it wasn't constant, but it was what I knew. So it was normal for me. Um, we lived on the East Coast in several uh, Marine Corps bases. Dad, mom was pregnant with my sister. Dad was shipped to Japan. Um, I think he wanted to deal, deal, not deal with that first 18 months of life, maybe. I don't know. Um, so mom was taken back to New Jersey to be with her mom. And we were back in New Jersey when my sister was born. And then um, dad came home and again, East Coast uh, Marine Corps bases. And then it was to Okinawa for four years with a a vacation in Japan. We did a two-week vacation there. Uh, Then back to the East Coast to headquarters Marine Corps in Arlington, Virginia. And then he retired and we went and he got a job with the military working uh, in uh, Panama. So we're in the canal zone. So we we were moved to Panama my last two years of high school. And I got there and I said, oh, finally, eternal summer. And uh, I'm an outdoor person. I like being outdoors. If it can be done outdoors, I'll do it outdoors. And uh, Panama was very conducive to that. And what was, I mean, obvious question, but what was Panama like? It must have been a, a change of scene. It was. It was definitely a different change of scene. It was hotter, uh, wetter, moister. Humidity was great. You had nine months of rain. And that wasn't, and when I say nine months of rain, let's face it, they don't have a canal down there because it doesn't rain. Um, They do get a lot of rainfall, but it doesn't rain day after day after day. It'll rain, you know, like two o'clock in the afternoon, you'll get this horrendous rain shower for an hour and a half or something, and then it's done. But then you've got the humidity that you're dealing with. And the next day, maybe it comes at 2.15 in the afternoon. And it just kind of rotates through the 24-hour period of that sort of thing. I mean, there'll be days where you'll have an unusual spell of rain all day, all night type of thing. But that's not the normal. Um, went to high school down there, graduated high school, went to two years college at the Canal Zone College. Um, my parents were then shipped to um, Iran and uh, I had gotten married to my first husband and I stayed in Panama. He was working for the Panama Canal Company at the time. This was before the treaty with uh, Carter and Torrijos. And it was, um, it was, Panama was a great place. You, we lived in the canal zone. We shopped a little in the canal zone. But if you, when I say we lived, we, you know, our house was there. We didn't, if you wanted to live, you had to live out in the country. You had to go to the city. You had to do four-wheel drive trips out into the mountains and see the back country. Um, and that's what we did. But I mean, just, you know, if you just stayed in the canal zone, you'd go absolutely stir crazy, I think. Um, it was a, it's, it's the closest thing the U.S. government has ever run to socialism because it was a area where if you lived in the canal zone, then you obviously had a job in the canal zone. You worked for the U.S. government. You worked for the military. Um, you didn't live there unless you worked for the U.S. government, basically, in one form or fashion. They took care of the housing. They took care of the the lawns, the garbage pickup. You didn't have any of that to worry about. It was all taken care of for you. 
But if you wanted to actually enjoy life, you got out and enjoyed the country. This is not a loaded question at all, but did you find that kind of military style, lifestyle, um, did you enjoy it? Did you find it comforting or was it limiting? I didn't have any problems with it. Um, I, I've always been around military, uh, one fashion. Even when we lived in Okinawa, we didn't live on base. We lived off base, which again was kind of nice. You weren't surrounded 24-7 by the military. But the school we went to was on base. The grocery store, the PX commissary we shopped to was on base. But again, my parents were the type of people that if you want to see the country, you get out and see the country. You don't just stay on base. I mean, mama take us downtown, what she called Black Market Alley in Naha, uh, Naha, Okinawa. And it was just these little stalls and shacks. And I mean, it was just little warrens of alleys and stuff. And you just go down there and you'd shop for just about anything you wanted. You know, she was a sewer. So she was looking for material and tagged us. We tagged along with her type of thing, two little kids going down there and, and just, you know, just seeing and experiencing the sights and the smells and the people that were in these little shacks and uh, market area. And we took trips up into the, Okinawa small, let's face it, it's only about 50 miles long and two to, I think, 12 miles wide. Maybe I forget the maximum width. Um, so, I mean, it's a small country, but I mean, we'd take trips up into what we considered the interior, which was further north than where we were up and stay in uh, non-military type of uh, resorts and stuff that the, the country had. It sounds amazing in some senses. I can't imagine it. So what kind of, you know, you're mentioning the stuff you were doing with your parents, but where did your own kind of adventurous side begin and what were you getting up to? I don't think I really got that until after I probably met Lauren. Um, and I met him in 75 when I was living in the Canal Zone. Well, at that time... When was the treaty? I, I don't know, 75. It was still the canal zone. I forget my history here, but yeah, it was still the canal zone. Uh, he came down driving this big Ford F-250 pickup truck, massive bumper, California license plates, outfitted like it was going to take on the world, which he, in you know hindsight, that's what he was planning on doing. However, living in the canal zone and knowing other tr people that we've seen come through there, it's like, okay, this guy thinks he's going to drive from here to Columbia and you know he doesn't know what he's in for type of thing well my former husband my ex-husband brought him home for dinner and said look what I found and uh, it was talking with him and I you know it was something that I think was in me but because I had become I was married we had a house in the you know we lived in the government housing in the canals and I was working so it was not something I could do but it was always kind of in my mind, oh, wow, I'd like to do that. I always read books on adventurers as a kid. I mean, uh, Baker going up the Nile and um, uh, uh, Stanley and uh, who was the doctor? Dr. Livingston. There we go. Stanley Livingston. I don't know if you're familiar with the Martins, Osa and um, Mar oh, Martin Johnson. Johnson was the last name. Osa was his wife. They were in the early 20s, big wildlife photographers in Africa before wildlife photography was ever a, a thing. And uh, so, I mean, I read these type of books. So that was always kind of in my mind that, that I wanted this. But anyway, um, my husband and I had contacts with people that knew more about the, the Darien Gap. So we 
kind of pushed Lauren in that direction, said, if you want information, you want maps, you want firsthand experience, you talk to these people. And so that was my introduction to him. It was one of those things that I was, I had it in my mind that I'd like to do, because he was looking for volunteers to go at least through the Darien Gap, but it was something that I was too scared to do. That was not my, what I wanted to do. I wasn't ready to take that, that leap. And uh, I continued working. He went on his travels. He, that's the, the, the event, uh, for those that aren't familiar with the Darien Gap, it's an area between Panama and Colombia where the Pan American Highway has yet to be completed. Um, it's, um, now it's a pretty ruthless area with the, uh, the tra human trafficking coming through, plus the refugees and everything else coming up from everywhere in the world to the U.S. Um, and even when we were there, we were told you're going to get shot and killed. And of course, when he was there in 75, he said, you're going to get shot and killed. I mean, but these are always from people that have never been there. It's not like, you know, I'll tell people, well, I, I don't live in a big city, but I mean, you know, you can tell someone that lives, that's visiting you in a big city. Well, don't go down to that area because you could get shot and killed. Not that you know anyone that's been shot and killed, but it just has that reputation. Um, so anyway, um, on that particular trip, Lauren had a volunteer with him who was shot and killed. Um, no one knows exactly what happened or why the, the truck wasn't robbed. Lauren was not even with the vehicle. It, they'd had a breakdown. Lauren was out getting parts. Larry stayed with the vehicle. And it was a, we think in our assumption that it was probably a mistake made by a native because they're very careless with their firearms. They're very old firearms. They're usually put together with bailing wire and duct tape if they happen to have it. And he was very friendly with the natives because Larry had a prosthetic foot. So the natives would bring in fruit and vegetables and water for them and they'd come in and spend the day with them. And so he had a good rapport with them because they'd been in this camp for several weeks by this time with this breakdown. And uh, so the thought, and since nothing was stolen from the vehicle, the thought by Lauren is that it was most likely one of the natives was just careless with his weapon, said bye, Larry, turned around, walked out, threw his 22 over his shoulder and was leaving when it, it discharged um, because nothing was ever found or done that we know of about it. And uh, so that put an end to that particular trip. But it, Lauren being the type of person he is, he wasn't going to let one thing stop him. And uh, he put together another one. I saw him in 79 or 77 when he came back down to Panama. And I, again, kind of pushed him in the right direction for supplies, helped him with this, helped him with that. And then he was gone. And I don't think I saw him when he came through in 70, that was 77. In 79, I didn't see him. When he returned in 84, my husband and I were separated. And it was at that time that I thought, well, maybe I'm ready to take this, you know, temporary leap, 30 days, you know, we're going to get through the Darien Gap, it's going to be a piece of cake, no problem, blah, blah, blah. Lauren had been down there now three times and was getting, a, you know, he'd been through it once completely, but it wasn't all by land. And that was the, the key to the whole trip is it was to be an all land crossing of the Darien Gap. So I said, at this time, I could arrange for some because January, February is dry season, and I could arrange for someone to take over my job. And uh, I had the, the bookkeeper just come in full time. And uh, I said, I'm ready to take that leap. Well, 30 days turned into a few more than 30 days. And then we weren't getting too far. So tr the trip was halted. 
and uh, Lauren stayed with that in that Indian village. And I went back to my job in Panama and sent him supplies and books and newspapers and anything to keep him occupied while he was in this Indian village for nine months. And uh, then my job, and then the next dry season, I take it back, next dry season, which had been dry season 86, I thought, okay, I can do another 30 days, work out my job, did that. Well, when I came back off that one, they were phasing out my job at the, I worked for the USA Girl Scouts in the canal area at this time. They were phasing out my job due to the Carter-Torrijos treaties, and they were going to go to an all-volunteer office staff. Well, that's all well and good, but if I'm a volunteer, I don't have anything to live on. I need to have a salary. I need to have housing. I need to have, you know, certain things, and, and volunteering doesn't give them to you. I said, well, that's that's the ticket right there. See ya. Bye. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Gone. <laughs> And I just said, no, I'm going full-time now. And uh, I just joined Lauren full-time at that point. And, you know, not to jump the gun with this question, but was this a friendship or was it something more? No, strictly a friendship at this point. It wasn't until third season, late in the third season, even if possibly we were even out of the Darien Gap by the time it turned into something more. But um, I'm going to say, yeah, probably well into Colombia, if not even further down the road. And can I ask you to tell me a bit more about that that trip and those travels down there? I mean, that's not a place I know very well. It's not a place we've talked about much on this podcast before. You know, what did you experience? Um, I personally didn't have any problems. I mean, I've read journals of, um, well, the British went through there in early 70s in um, when Range Rover, the first year Range Rover came out. They took two Range Rovers down there. They had all sorts of problems. They had to bring in a land. In fact, I was with the four-wheel drive club in Panama at the time. They had uh, to bring in a uh, Land Rover, secondhand Land Rover from, they bought there in the Canal Zone or Panama to help get the Range Rover through. Um, but they it was work for them. It was, and they had a huge amount of people on that trip. and. They had sort of all sorts of problems. And I'm not saying we didn't have problems. We had problems. Um, but, you know, they had, I don't know, upwards of close to, I think, 100 people or something on their trip. And all military and a lot of officers. And, like, you get a lot of officers from the military together, and they're all beating their chest and thumping their chests and, you know, wanting to be the, the best, so to speak. And, you know, the others are just kind of having to follow along behind and follow orders. And that's not necessarily the best cohesive group to have. With us, we had one vehicle, we had one chief. Lauren was the, the final decision maker. Not that he didn't listen to other people's suggestions if there were, you know, something we were discussing how to make something work or do. Um, and we hired natives to work for us. I mean, we didn't know where we were. We weren't, you know, we had to hire natives that knew the area. And that that doesn't mean that they knew necessarily, because if you ask a native, okay, how do I get from Pinogana to uh, Basal? Well, you get on the river and you go up the Tweeter River and you get to Basal. Well, no, that's not what we want to do. We have to stay on land. Well, then they have to go out and they have to search it, but they still know the land. They don't necessarily know a route but they know where the, the the town of Basal is. They know where they are. They know the river system. So they know more or less what to do to get there. And that's what we relied on is it, we were lost the whole time. It was, if it wasn't for the natives, we'd still be down there in circles. 
they were the ones that got us through. Axes and machetes, nothing breaks down when you have an axe or a machete. You got chainsaws, you got problems. You got more equipment and things to sharpen and things to repair. All you need is a file for an axe and a machete, so you're good. And those people down there know how to use them better than anybody. And they were the ones we hired. They're the ones that got us through there. Hired a cook to cook for everybody because we had anywhere from four to 14 men working for us at any given time. And I mean, there'd be days where we wouldn't move, but then there'd be, you know, they'd be out searching trail, marking trail. And then maybe the next day we'd, you know, move a half mile. Woohoo. Um, so, and I, when I tell the story, I say, I walked the Darien Gap. You walked it. I said, you know, we're doing a half mile a day. Big, big stress, you know, it's not that difficult. And uh, you're not going fast for that half mile. It takes you all day to go that half a mile. So it was a, uh, a slow trip, but it was what we wanted in that it was to be an all land crossing. We crossed rivers, but we never traveled up or down them to avoid difficult areas because there were difficult areas and we found ways either around them or through them. And when it comes to, you know, the local people that you're encountering and hiring, were they, and again, no wrong answer to this, I think these relationships take different forms, but were they kind of staff members of the team or did you become close with them and, you know, interact with them? Yes, definitely interacted with them. Um, The head guide we had, we didn't have them the first dry season in because we couldn't find Margarito. Margarito had worked for Lauren on one of his previous expeditions and we couldn't find him. And we did find him for the second and the third. That man he does not speak English. His only word in English that he knows is okay. And, but he knew what Lauren wanted. He could, he'd, he'd hold his arms out to the sides and he'd have a machete in one hand. And he knew that that's how wide the trail had to be. And if he swung his machete overhead, it had to be higher than that because he was kind of a short guy. And, uh, he had a little bit of trouble discerning the side hill capabilities of the Jeep because the Jeep was of the old style, had a hard roof and it was very narrow and sorry about that. I think UPS is here. <laughs> um, it was very narrow. So it was top heavy. So side hills were something that he had a definite problem with. He, and he'd get us into something and Lauren say, no, no, we got to find a better route around this. This one's not going to do other side hills. I mean, Lauren, Lauren had the engineering down. He could do that. That was a little above what the natives could do. Margarito, I mean, I'm still in contact with him via other people in Panama. Um, The one cook we hired for the second season, the third season, and the third season, uh, Juan Rebus, we nicknamed him Cookie. And everyone down there now knows him by Cookie. And he's, again, these two people, there's very few people in this world that you can honestly say you trust your life to implicitly you you just know that they know what they're talking about. Margarito and Cookie were two people that I, I just totally trusted. If they told me to jump, I didn't even ask how high. I just jumped because um, they knew the area. They're, they knew they knew more about what was out there, even that we couldn't see. I mean, we were told one time that there were some natives following us, but they were following us off to one side from an, another village. It was uh, kind of eerie, but Cookie had said, yeah, they're out there. Don't worry about them. They're not going to be any problem. They're just curious. So it was, you know, they knew these things where I didn't know. Dink. Someone could have probably come up behind me and I wouldn't have known it. But Cookie and Margarita were always on the ball. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And how did your, how was your experience altered in terms of your kind of enjoyment or learning, et cetera, as a result of your interactions with them? Oh, loved it. I mean, and and I don't really speak Spanish. I, my broken Spanish. And I mean, Lauren had to walk out um, second dry season in, second dry season in. We were running low on supplies because this always became an issue. Logistics were mind boggling because you need to keep the men fed and you need to keep the Jeep with gas. And it, I don't think we were too bad on the gas situation, but food was running low and he had to walk out and he said, okay, I'll be gone probably seven days. If I'm not back in nine days, get yourself out. And he left cookie margarito. And I think there were one or two other natives that he left in the, in the, in the camp with me. And I mean, we would talk in our broken Spanish. And I mean, we understood each other and we tell stories and relate things. And t- they tell me about their kids and their wives and, and wife. Well, there's two of them, so there'd be different wives. Not that one had more than one wife. <laughs> um, so it was, um, it was good. I enjoyed it. And Lauren came back on the seventh day. So <laughs> that was all good. Um, but it was... Um, it was a, it was a, it was a good experience. It was, it, it teach, it teaches one that you've got a lot more inside you to make things work than you really ever thought you did. Um, that was, again, one of Lauren's sayings is, you know, if it doesn't work, damn it, make it work. And I just started doing that. I thought, okay, that's, if it isn't working, then okay, we'll find a way to make it work. We'll find one way or another. We'll, we'll get around it, get through it or get over it. And I assume that this journey eventually was successful. And how yes. long did it take? It was the, um, the, the vehicle that made it through the Darien Gap. We christened, Lauren had christened her the SS for Sandship. He was a desert person. Sandship Discovery, after one of Captain Cook's vessels of the uh, mid-1700s. And he left Poodle Bay, Alaska on June 15, 1984. And we arrived in Gamvik, Norway on July 4th, 1989. So it was just over five years, 56,000 miles. And when you look at a globe and you look across the poles, you're about 3,000 miles from, uh, where was it? Pudo Bay, Alaska. So, and we did 56,000 miles to get there and just over five years. But that was just in the Sandship Discovery. If you take in, and let me just kind of back up. This is what thing, this is what's hard about this story is there's always, but wait, there's more. Um, you take into account the three previous expeditions Lauren had, the 75 with the Ford, the 77 with the CJ-7, the 79 with the CJ-5. All of those were lost one way or another. Man was shot and killed 
that uh, second one was lost over a cliff in Ecuador. The third one was uh, confiscated by um, Colombian park officials in the Daring Gap of Colombia. Um, and Lauren said he would take one vehicle, not a series of vehicles. So it was always to start over each and every time. And then after we finished the trip in Norway, well, actually back up, same trip. When we were in 87, when we got to Egypt, went into the Sinai, drove under the Suez Canal, in the Sinai Peninsula, around to Israel. Well, at the time we were there in Israel, excuse me, this was 88, not 87, um, Israel and Jordan were technically at war. You couldn't drive from Israel to Jordan or vice versa, nor being Americans anyway, it wasn't really recommended that we drive to Lebanon and to stay all on land. Those were our only two choices at that point. And uh, so we had to go back into is to um, Egypt and take a ferry boat from Egypt to Aqaba in Jordan and then go up through Jordan, which we did. We took the ferry up. But so there was that water break that was not a legitimate water break because there was a land route. And we continued on through um, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, um, we went into Romania, our paperwork to enter the Soviet Union, it was the Soviet Union at that time, was not ready for us as prearranged in Cairo weeks before. And it was now October, we said, well, we're not going to wait around here for two weeks to, to go into Norway in the winter. So we went to England and wintered in England, thanks to a Land Rover club, they set Lauren up on a, a farm with some people. And he stayed there for the winter, I came back to the States, we returned, finished the trip, to Norway in 89. Well, now fast forward, came back to the States, life gets in the way, jobs, everything. Anyway, um, in 2016, Lauren's nephew, Lawrence, who was with us the first 30 days on the trip in 85, in, or 84, 85 in the Daring Gap, he came and visited us here in Idaho and he said, boy, I sure like to get you guys back to Israel to close the final mile. And that's what we had been calling it was the final mile. So he took the Jeep back to his house and he started a, a restoration project on it. And the man we had been working for for the past 24 years said, you've got to go now because Lauren's health is not that good. He could see Lauren's health was declining quite fast. He said, you've got to go sooner rather than later. So it all came together. And in 2018, the spring of 2018, um, our employer put up all the money for shipping the Jeep to and from uh, Israel and our air transportation. So that was 99% of the budget right there. Lawrence got the Jeep ready and it was shipped to Egypt. We completed the final mile on May 3rd, 19, oh, excuse me, 2018. We drove from the Iksak Rabin border crossing in Israel, just outside Elot, to uh, Airport Street, just outside uh, Aqaba in Jordan, where we'd been 30 some, almost 30 years prior, made a U-turn, came right back into Israel so that we completed our final mile. Same vehicle, same people, whole bit. So that technically was the end of the trip. Would have been if you start from when he first started in 75 to when we stopped in 2018. So that was the, the accumulation of taking one American-made vehicle around the world on a north-south course, all on land, except for the South Atlantic. How did that feel, the 2018 moment? That was great. That was absolutely wonderful. I just was ecstatic with it. I, we had problems with the Jeep when we got to Israel, having problems starting it. And I had never driven it in all the time I traveled in it. Lauren was the one driving it. I mean, it, that was just assumed. I mean, I didn't need to drive it. And 
it, it fit him. It was his, it was his. And uh, so it was a big deal. I had to learn to drive it before the day we were shipping it out. Lawrence took me out in the streets around the neighborhood in, in Richmond, Richland, Washington. I mean, I, I can drive a stick shift. I learned on a stick shift. That's not the problem. Um, I drive a car. One of our older cars has uh, Armstrong steering. So that's not the problem. The fact that it didn't have any power assist or power brakes was kind of freaky for me. That one was the one that, okay, you know, I can make it go, but I certainly have to learn to make it stop. And uh, that was a little bit more, you know, okay, I've got a red light coming up in about three miles. I better start slowing down now. So, you know, Not that I was going that fast, but it was just those brakes were just, yeah. It was a little bit iffy on me. And I mean, I, the more I've driven it, which hasn't been much, I feel a little bit more comfortable with. And uh, there in, in Israel, it, well, just after we crossed the border into Jordan, it, the motor began missing a little bit. We don't need this. Let's keep going. Just pedal to the metal. Make it work. Keep going. Don't slow down. Ignore it. Make the U-turn and get back to the other side as fast as possible. And that's that's what we did, and it was a it was a great moment. When we made that U turn, I remember I had a by that time we had a GoPro, and I had the GoPro on, and I just screamed, "We did it, guys! We did it!" And it was just one of those, yeah, heart definitely heart moments that that, that really made it all worthwhile. And if I can ask, you know, you said the reason to go out when you did was deteriorating health. What was going on and did that alter or change the final mile? It Well, I'm, it altered it in the fact that Lauren couldn't drive it. Um, but he hadn't driven for a number of years due to actually other health issues with his eyes. He um, he came down with, was diagnosed with uh, wet macular degeneration in his left eye oh, many years ago. And he basically lost almost all sight in the left eye. And back many years prior to that, he'd had brain surgery for an AVM, an arterial venous malformation in his left occipital lobe. And he lost a little bit of sight to the right of center in his right eye. So he had blind spots all over the place. So he kind of gave up driving many, many years ago. And I've been the one doing the driving. Um, But it would have been nice if he could have driven that far. I mean, he was thankful that he was there. I mean, that, that he, he didn't, he never let on to me that he was uh, disappointed that he wasn't able to drive it. But I know that he would have been probably more elated if he could have been able to one, be the one to drive that final mile. Um, but then in 2000, this is 2018, 2000, he was diagnosed, by that summer, he was diagnosed with what they call Lewy body with dementia. And it's a really horrible disease. It's in the Parkinson's family. It's, um, if you're familiar with the actor, Robin Williams, it's the same disease that he was. And of course, it's one of those things. It's not a positive diagnosis till the person dies and they do an autopsy on the brain. And then they can say, yeah, that's definitely what it was. And that's what they did with, with Robin Williams. So it was the disease that, that Robin Williams has. It's a very, very nasty disease. And it, went downhill quite rapidly from when he was diagnosed in 2018. And he'd had, and looking back in hindsight, he'd had symptoms of it for probably three or four years prior to that. He didn't have some of the major um, symptoms that usually say, yeah, that's exactly what that is, which was hallucinations. That's usually the first thing that they, they get. He didn't have that until, oh, probably late 2018 when he started having the hallucinations. Um, but yeah, it was, um, 
it was pretty pretty rough. And again, if I can ask, when did he pass away? He passed away August of last year, 2022. Oh, wow. So very recently. Yeah. And after he passed, one of the things, we've always worked, well, the last several years, he hasn't worked, but I've worked. And we've worked for the same man. He has a summer home up here out of Idaho that he brings family to during the summertime. He comes up in the spring and fall for steelhead fishing. Um, and we've done repair work, painting, I do cooking, cleaning, you name it, we did it. If it was if it was something that we could do, we had it, we did it or had it done. Um, and it was always a seasonal job, spring through fall. And we've always wanted to get the story of the Jeep out there, what she's done, what we've done, and get her story told. But all these events that take place here in the States anyway, all happen spring through fall. Your Overland Expos, your Jeep Fests, all these things. And we said, well, when we retire, we'll do this. This is what we'll do when we retire. We'll take the Jeep around and showcase it. Well, that never happened. Life, life got in the way. So when Lauren passed last year, I thought, okay, I can sit here and worry about it and think about it, or I can get up and do it. So with Lawrence's help, again, I, I contacted Lawrence. I said, I need to get a trailer because I'm going to, I want an enclosed car hauler trailer for the Jeep. I said, I got to get a trailer, help me out. And he did. And he actually went and picked it up for me. It was made in just in Oregon somewhere. And he went and picked it up and brought it to his place in, in Washington, which is where the Jeep was stored anyway. And I went over in uh, Easter weekend and picked it up. He taught me how to load it and unload it and tie it down and check it out and do all that sort of stuff. And I took off and I did uh, one trip to Flagstaff to Overland Expo West. And then I just got back last week. No, yeah, Sunday, Saturday, last week after 5,116 miles across the States, um, took it to um, Bantam Jeep Festival, which is uh, in Butler, Pennsylvania, and uh, showcased her there at the, the Bantam Jeep Heritage Festival. And then I stored the Jeep and trailer in a, a place near Toledo. And I, here at the end of July, I go back, pick up the trailer, take her to the uh, Toledo Jeep Fest, and then haul her to uh, Loveland, Colorado for the Overland Expo West, Mountain West, excuse me. And then the middle of September, we'll be back here in Idaho and do the Teton Overland Show in Idaho Falls. And if I survive this whole trip, then I'll try for other events next summer. But <laughs> I figure I'll get what I can this year and, you know, because you never know what health's going to do or anything else. So do what I can while I can still do it. And what is it that's motivating you to go to those shows? What's the point? Lauren, Lauren, you're going to make me cry now. <laughs> it's one of his sayings that he had on his 79 Jeep, and I've since put on our trailer, is <clears throat> what I dare, I will. What I will, I do. And uh, I put that on the side of the, the trailer. And that's my inspiration. Follow what he would do, how he would do it, and get it done. And how is his story received when you tell it at the expos and the festivals? Wonderfully. I mean, I, it, it's kind of a multifaceted thing because, again, it's I'll tell parts of it and then I'll get into other parts where, I mean, we were in a life-threatening situation in um, Sudan 
we broke down and we were down. We had no idea where we were. There were no people. There was no civilization. We didn't even know where the Nile River was at that point. And it was the middle of June. And, uh, you know, I get into some of these stories where, you know, it's not just, you know, happy days and and good trails and, and, and sunshines and butterflies and rainbows type of thing. And they, they, people are just amazed at, at what we've done and that the story hasn't been told. And that's the point is I have to get out there and tell it now and get our story out there in front of people, um, trying to find someone that'll help me, like I say, write the book, um, because that's a big, big thing is we've got to get a book written. And um, I did get good advice from someone at the Overland Expo in uh, Flagstaff. Um, he came to the slide presentation I gave and he said, what you need to do, he says, you don't need to write the book. You need to tell the book. And then you need to find somebody who's a good editor that can take those audio recordings and take the journals. We have journals. We have so many journals and I've got them all digitized. They're all on word now. So they're, they're easy to send to anybody and combine both your story and then excerpts from the journals from Lauren's point of view, that sort of thing. And then that's how the book will be written. Sitting down, because I don't feel that I can do it. I don't have the talent or the patience, maybe. I'm, I'm more of a get up and do it type thing than sit and constantly be working at the computer. That would probably drive me up the wall real fast. Um, but I can I can tell a story. So um, if you can, if you're happy to, I wondered if you could tell me what he was like. Complicated, but very simple. I don't know if that really, you know, he he was one of those people that he would always say there has to be a mystery in life. So you never sometimes got the full story. He has a number that he signs on every birthday card he sends to anybody. Anytime he writes a letter, whether it's a business letter or not, he would write his name and he'd sign, put this number down there, 7-13. I never got the full story of what that number meant to him. It was one of those things that he says, well, it has to be some mysteries in life. So somewhere it meant something very personal to him, as well as the few things that he did tell me about it. And so, I mean, it was, it was, like I said, he very, lots of layers a quiet, shy around a lot of people. He, when we gave slide presentations, he loved to talk, you know, go to schools and give slide presentations to kids. He loved doing that. I would do the slide presentations and then open it up for questions and answers. And that's where he would come in and want to talk with the kids and, and give them, you know, ask the, answer their questions and, and ask them questions and, and that sort of thing. Get them thinking about stuff. One of the, his favorite things to ask kids was, what's the only thing you can do entirely by yourself? Oh, I can, you know, do my homework. No, the teacher had to give you that work to do before you could do it. Well, I can go out and play basketball. No, someone had to make that basketball and make that hoop for you to do it with. And you get their wheels turning and they got nothing. He said, okay, in my opinion, the only thing that you can do entirely by yourself with no outside help from anybody whatsoever is fail. Because you have to say, I failed. You are the one that has to say, I give up. I've done it. I, I, I haven't done it. I failed. 
And it would, you know, it would get, the, you could just see their wheels turning when he would say that to them. And uh, so, and we'd get letters from them. And, and one, I remember this one kid wrote back, and Mr. Upton, I haven't failed yet. I keep trying. <laughs> so if you can inspire kids this way to, first of all, get outside, do something outside the front door. There's a world out there. I mean, there's places that are just absolutely mind-boggling, wonderful, that and every place has to be explored, not just the good ones, the bad ones. It all has to be explored and experienced to know what's there. Book learning is great, but it doesn't teach you everything. It's a good foundation, but take that step. Yeah, it's amazing. It makes me want to read the book when it's done. <laughs> So well, how if many you know any, if you know anyone is interested in helping them, helping me, you got my email. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sure someone will pick it up. Um, well, I'm really conscious of time, and I, I'd love to, you know, oh, yeah. we could do a whole series on these. But I always end every podcast with two questions, um, the same two questions, and I'd quite like to ask them of you as well. Um, mm -hmm. The first is, what scares you? I want to say the unknown, but it doesn't anymore. My doctor asked me yesterday at a physical, what's your goals for your health? I said, just keep living. So, I mean, you know, I don't know what scares me. Um, big cities, lots of people. I, I'm not a big city, heavy traffic person, especially after just doing this road trip. Um, I like my wide open spaces and, and people at a distance and me to approach and, and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know what scares me. Spiders, spiders, especially big ones. And especially now that Lauren's not around anything bigger than my little fingernail, it was a Lauren spider. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I might have a little bit of a problem with that one. Amazing. <laughs> um, and finally, what brings you hope? That I'm doing what Lauren wants me to do that I'm doing something that we talked about and that we wanted to accomplish and uh, get, get the story out there and, and get the discovery story and Lauren's story and my story told. And it gives me hope that I'm able to do it and I'm going to keep doing it until I can't do it. Well, I would say I hope you manage it, but I'm very, very confident that you will. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.